0: word. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for this chance together in worship. Thank you that a new day reminds us that your mercies are new and that you are good. Father, your goodness is enough to drive us to worship, but I pray that we will never just come to worship because we feel like we have to or there's some box we have to check out of some religious obligation that we sense father but that we would always seek to worship you for who you are and what you've done and what you have called us to do in your name in this world bless our time in jesus name amen the first time that we brought our daughter to lamar avenue and she was old enough to walk and talk i remember her asking me about the pictures in the back wall and that reminds me Uh, of an old joke that i heard a preacher tell one time they were in the lobby and they were looking at pictures like those and next to those pictures there was a plaque Uh, and the little boy who was looking at these pictures he was just kind of standing there looking and and scratching his head and wondering what they were and the preacher walked up with him and and the little boy uh, turned to the preacher and said preacher what are all the names on this plaque and the preacher sort of felt an opportunity to teach the young boy and said son Those are the names of people who have died in the service, and the little boy said, which one, Sunday morning or Sunday night? (laughs) I just got to make sure you're still awake. (laughs) Music in worship has always been a topic of tense conversation. It's always been a A source of water cooler discussion, of church meeting discussion. It's been a controversial subject since really before the time of Jesus. And when you think about how music is everywhere around us, that really should not be a surprise. I think in some sense we don't even realize how present music is all around us, it's a part of every major occasion across all cultures, whether it's a birthday party or a wedding or a funeral or a pageant or a rite of passage of some kind or a parade or a festival or an anniversary. But singing is something that really even transcends beyond that. Whether you're in Walmart or whether you're on Wall Street, whether you're in an elevator or in a car in the most remote jungle village in Zululand, John, or whether you're in a store in what used to be Maribu, but I don't know what it's called now, there's music somewhere. Someone discovered that people can remember information better when it's accompanied by music. And so 70 years ago, an advertiser came up with one of the the first significant jingles uh, in the radio and television era of Oh, I Wish I Were Ann. I didn't even have to finish it. Music is powerful. Plato said, I could care less about your written laws, let me write a nation's music. It's an extraordinarily powerful means of communication and expression. Virgil, uh, third century uh, before the third century before Christ, Greek Greek poet and prophet said, "Author, let us go singing as far as we go; the road will be far less tedious." Augustine, the, fa- the famous theologian, said, "He who sings well prays twice." Across the centuries, music has been a primary means of conversion and spiritual formation, and that's because music has the power to transform who we are. And in this room this morning, I feel it's especially true that there are those of us who could easily say that music has had a really important role in our lives, especially the music of the church. I mean, some of us even make decisions about where we're going to go to church based on what? Music. It's one of the most unique, unifying things, but it's one of the most dividing, controversial things at the same time. When I think about my own life and my most memorable moments in church, those times when I have felt closest to God, it almost always involves singing. Whether it was in this room, or whether it was at Camp Beer Run as a kid, whether it was in someone's home, God's love, God's power, God's, God's forgiveness have reached my heart and my head largely through music. And I'm guessing some of you feel the same way. And in a lot of ways, we've allowed our personal preferences to cloud our judgment a little bit when it comes to music, because we all have our preferences, right? And there's really no more divisive or segregated hour, even musically, than Sunday morning. We all have our preferences. Well, this morning, I want us just to take a few minutes and sort of take a warp speed view and go everywhere preaching the word about some myths I think we have come to believe about singing to God and about worship, and we're going to do that this morning and maybe uh, debunk some of those myths and maybe be reminded about just how important what we do when we come together on Sunday morning is. If you've got a Bible, if you've got a device, we're going to start in Second Chronicles chapter 20. This is one of my favorite uh, Old Testament stories, the story of King Jehoshaphat. In 2 Chronicles 19 and 20, we sort of have a bird's-eye glance into the political war room strategy and headquarters uh, for the king of Judah. And at the beginning of chapter 20, uh, what was apparently a short time of peace has come to an end, or it seems so, we read that three nations have come to make war. And Jehoshaphat learns this, and he's trying to figure out what to do what is his response as king upon learning that war is imminent starting in 2nd chronicles chapter 20 verse 18 after all of his learning about what's about to happen it tells us what his response is jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground and all the people of judah and jerusalem fell down and worship before the lord Then some Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites, people who were in the the Levitical line, people who were devoted to the worship leading of the people. They stood up and praised the Lord of God, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa, and as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem, he's about to give his war strategy, Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. you got to imagine that the people who are hearing this are scratching their head. Hold on a second. This is how we're going to win this war against three powerful nations? Are you crazy? What have you been smoking, King Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat, verse 21, After consulting the people, appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for His love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. What happened? The king went in to worship as he sought God's will on the situation. How many of us have that backwards? God, if you'll fix this problem with my finances. God, if you'll fix this thing with my business. God, I need to to get this, and so if I get this, I'll praise you. Well, that's not what the king did. He worshipped first, and look what happened. A God-given solution to the problem at hand that the king probably would have never thought about himself. And what an odd military strategy. He, he goes to his, his council of his... Secretary of Defense and National Security and says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put singers in front of the army. That's not very manly. But he did. Send out the singers in front of the army and leave the rest to me. What happened? Both societally and militarily and socially, the singers had a place of importance. Their talent was valued by God, and as they sought after victory that could only came from God, they sang. Our way is just the opposite most of the time. We wait for the victory, and then we say, we'll sing. And that's the first myth that I want us to debunk today, and that's the myth of, if I get, I'll give back. We worship, we sing, or we say we will in hopes that we'll get something, Wow, God, you really blessed me this week. Man, am I going to give it back to you on Sunday? Well, God doesn't need it. It needs to be just the opposite. You can't add to the glory that God already has and is. All you can do is put him on display for everyone to see. You see, when we come together, we are not the audience. Let me say that again. When we come together we are not the audience God is the audience and we need to turn it upside down and sing in anticipation of what God is going to do we could we could look a hundred places or more and see where God commands us to sing I mean look at psalm 63 God you are my God earnestly I seek you I thirst for you my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life my lips will glorify you I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will sit quietly and not sing no it's not what it says In your name I will lift up my hands. I'm going to say this this morning probably until you don't want to hear it anymore, but what we see in this psalm and in many other places in Scripture is that singing is not a suggestion. Singing is a commandment. God commands us to sing But it's more than that. David, his whole being is satisfied and longs for God. He sees God's glory, and the only response he has is what? He says, I'm going to sing for the rest of my life. His only response is one of worship. He says, your love is better than life, and as long as he lives, I'm going to praise you. Here's a question Why not praise God while we're alive with all that we have? We're anticipating what we're going to do in eternity, so why not amp up our practice a little bit on earth? We could flip a few pages over. Randy already read from Psalm 95 Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Not only are we commanded to sing, but singing and joy go hand in hand. Singing and emotion go hand in hand. Psalm after psalm after psalm, there are examples where emotion and singing are tied together. Anger, sadness, confusion, lament, doubt, thanksgiving, all emotions that are tied together to when we sing to God. Thanksgiving is another common thread through almost every text we're going to look at today because when we see who God is and what He's done, we're we're filled with overflowing because He's so good. We're, We're so thankful that we can't help but sing. Look at the very next psalm, Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Singing is not just a suggestion. He says it three times. He says sing a new song. Even in the Old Testament, they needed new songs. You're supposed to laugh. And it was important for God's praise. Why? Because he's worthy. He doesn't need our praise, folks. He desires it, and he deserves it because he's worthy. And we're reminded time after time that worship is not about us. It's about God. Here's another favorite of mine, and this one is a little bit off the beaten path. But I can't tell you how many times from this stage... We have heard, I have heard, you have heard people read from Matthew chapter 26 before communion. The account of Jesus and his disciples sharing in the Last Supper together. And most often when we read this text, we stop at the end of verse 29. Well, there's something else that happens that can make such a difference in this short little verse. And it often gets left out for us and it makes such a difference when we think about singing. Matthew 26, verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now you say, okay, that's a little different. Never heard that one in a singing sermon before. Why would you bring it up? Well, it's really simple. Jesus, at maybe the most important and crucial, intense time in his life and in his ministry, found the time made the time and it was an important enough for Jesus with his closest friends to sing the cross is on the horizon what did they do they sang if singing was important enough for Jesus and the disciples you know the rest of that statement how much more important is it for us we could read Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are in prison it tells that story. And before the earthquake happens, which opens the doors and sets in motion this incredible God story of the conversion of the jailer, what were Paul and Silas doing in prison when they were not just in the cell, they were in solitary in stocks in chains. The worst cell, the worst part of a Roman jail that you could be in. What were they doing? They weren't clanking their cups against the, the, the jail bars saying, let us out. They were singing. And what followed after that? Conversion and an entire family coming to Jesus. An earthquake. Yeah, their singing didn't cause the earthquake. God caused that. But I'm going to tell you, when we sing and we believe it and it changes us, things can happen. God's power. They sing and God delivers them. It's not the opposite. God doesn't deliver and then they sing. We get those backwards sometimes. They sing and then God delivers them. We could look at Ephesians 5, which is a passage we know very well. We're going to read the the bulk of this context. We sometimes like to pull out the last part of verse 18 and verse 19 and separate that from the rest of what goes on in Ephesians chapter 5. But start in verse 15. Be very careful then how you live. christ we're commanded to sing but knowing scripture like we do we know that this little passage is right in the middle of a longer passage about these virtues that people who follow jesus are supposed to exhibit kind of like colossians chapter 3 where paul says almost the exact same thing it's a parallel passage as well to hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 which we'll get to in a minute but Paul equates singing with and to one another and to God with things like gentleness and humility and purity and compassion and forgiveness. And again, he puts joy in the picture. That little three-word phrase, from your heart, ha- having grown up in churches of Christ All my life and having deep roots in churches of Christ on both sides of my family. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people use this text to proof text it, to make negative arguments about things. And we've just skipped over those three words from the heart. How many times have we rushed to make this a verse more about form and what in worship instead of the attitude that he's talking about? It reminds me of Augustine who I talked a little bit about in the Bible class time who said, he who sings well prays twice. Augustine would go on in that same writing in his confessions to talk about our role in worship. He says, in worship, God is the musician and the people are the instruments. No instrument ever plays itself. It's an empty, lifeless thing until the musician picks it up. We, too, are empty, lifeless instruments until God breathes his spirit into us and gives us a song. What an incredibly challenging analogy for those of us who value what we do when we come together on Sunday mornings and sing to him with his God-given voice that each of us have. It implies that what we do and when we join our voices together, it has a, a cost to it. Like other disciplines, making melody in our hearts requires us to put ourselves aside, to sacrifice, to demands something of us if we will allow God to stretch us and make this beautiful melody with us. And that's a humbling, humbling perspective when it comes to thinking about singing. We just think it's me and my voice and here we go. But we are not in charge. God is in charge. The great music is not our achievement, but it's God's achievement from His Spirit. It's like the old lyric of, Lord, we come before Thee now, where it says, Tune our lips to sing Thy praise. We're commanded to sing, and it's tied to holiness. The, the last part of Colossians chapter 3 is one that we like to skip over too. We certainly don't like to tie it to worship, but Colossians 3.17 says, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We're called to do it with all our hearts. And so for the last couple of minutes, I want to debunk two more myths. The first of these is is this and that's that my voice doesn't matter or my voice isn't pretty or i i don't sing or i choose not to sing i'm intimidated by the others singing around me or or no one around me is singing so i'm not going to sing i i can't tell you how often i hear those words this this, what I did this weekend, I get to do this three or four times a year all across the country, and that's a common thing that I hear in our churches, is there are people who don't sing because they feel, well, my voice isn't pretty or in such and such reason why they don't sing. Well, I want to tell you, God doesn't really care about that. God doesn't care about the quality of your tenor or the volume of your alto or whatever part you sing. Worship is not passive. I came across a quote of a very famous choral music educator named Helen Kemp, who was a longtime teacher at Westminster Choir College, and she said, Body, mind, soul, and voice, it takes the whole person to sing and rejoice. We are not just body and soul people. There's body, soul, and spirit Someone says, I'm singing in your heart. Yeah, that's necessary and it's important. But God wants more than that. He doesn't need more than that. He doesn't need anything from us. But he wants the fruit of our lips. The most famous passage of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Tie them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you lie and walk along the road and lie down at night. Jesus would take that and he would add the word strength to it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and all your strength. We talked about change a little bit during Bible class, and culture and time has changed. We're less and less a singing culture and more and more an entertain me culture. It's an American Idol world, and we're all feeling like we're entitled to be Simon Cowell and judge everybody's voice. Like we're the ones who get to stamp the red button and say, you get the automatic ticket. That may be the voice. I may be getting my... My show is mixed up. But the point is this. In such a consumer-driven world where we're feeling this entitlement to be consumers and critics, singing like we do this morning, congregational singing suffers. We don't sing at home like some did a generation ago. So everything we do becomes subject to critical analysis. And so because of that, It may explain why some come to worship here in other places and sit and don't ever open their mouths. They don't feel qualified. They don't understand that there's a gift that we are offering to God when those mouths come open and words come out. One scholar guessed that about 40% of churchgoers seem to have picked up the idea that singing in church is just for the singers. The truth is, My counter to that is that singing is for believers. That's the problem Martin Luther set out to reform in 1517 when he walked into the situation in the church where the audience, and we'll talk about that word in a second, they were just sitting with their arms crossed watching the professionals sing. The question is not, do you have a voice do you have a good voice that's not the question the question for us is do you have a song David sang because he had a song and so should we God should, could have just said in each of these instances we've looked at this morning where he says to sing God could have just inspired those words to just say praise Come, let us praise with joy to the Lord. Let us praise aloud. And that would have been fine. We would have never known the difference, but he didn't. He said, sing. And more than that, God never says, if you can sing. He just says, sing. Be like the little child who doesn't really care how good their voice is. They just sing I remember a little girl in church singing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my noise. We would do well to take a little bit of that into our own hearts. The last thing I want to talk about is this myth that I call the auditorium myth. By calling this an auditorium, we've created a barrier to offering ourselves fully in worship. You know why? Because that word implies a place where you're spectators. That root word, A-U-D, going back to the Latin meaning to hear. You're not here to be an observer. We're not called into this place to be hearers only. We're not here to observe. We have to move from spectator to participator. That's what God wants. God wants us to take the initiative as a disciple of Jesus to make the move from observer to participant. And that takes work when we come in week in and week out. We have to work to give something of ourselves because it's so easy to shift into autopilot because we've done it so often that it becomes old hat, old news. To be a participator means we have to engage heart, soul, mind, and strength, emotion, intellect, body. We have to express. I mean, just think about it. We go to football games, and we sing the national anthem, and we cheer on our teams with a lot of joy and emotion, Some of us have different opinions on teams than the preacher. But we go in sporting events and we're yelling at the top of our lungs or we're driving down the road and we're listening to music and you pull up. I did it yesterday. I'm driving down Clarksville Street, taking my daughter to get a snow cone at the best snow cone place on the planet, tropical snow. And I look out the window and this girl is just jamming out. I don't know what it was, but she made eye contact with me and you would have thought she saw a ghost All of us do that. And we do it in places other than church. If we do it in all these other places, why would we not want to come into this place where we honor and worship the God of the universe and the Savior of the world with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you awake? And it requires sacrifice, Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. First, that word continually. That's not a past tense word, that's a present tense word. It really means perpetually, always doing. And then he describes it as a sacrifice of praise. Singing and worship take effort. To sacrifice means that we're each giving up something, giving up something out of our own selfish desire, our own wants of doing something. To borrow Jesus' words from Luke chapter 10 in the story of Mary and Martha and saying that we want to do something better and higher and greater. We want to do it openly, not begrudgingly because you have to check some box. And we sacrifice our personal stuff on the altar of worship. And when we do that, we allow others in the room to have a more deep and profound worship. It's ascribing worth to something. And we choose to lay our own preferences down because we're not ascribing worth to our own preferences. That's idolatry. We're created to worship. From the beginning, we are created to worship, but we have to make a choice of what we're going to worship. And so when we say we're going to worship God and we're going to do it for the sake of others, it's putting all of our desires and needs down at the foot of the cross to say this is not just some religious exercise. We do it for the sake of others and for God's sake and for his glory. And we can look at James chapter 5. Is anyone in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. All these emotions have a place in our worship. And we need to be reminded just how important singing is to God and to us in the church. We've not even talked about the heavenly picture of worship, of eternal gathering around the throne of God that Revelation is full of. Man, we could use a little bit of what, what the Hebrews who were receiving the letter in Hebrews, thought was the the end of days. In the opening of Hebrews chapter 1, the writer says, uh, in these last days, God has spoken to us through Jesus. They thought that when Jesus came, the end was near. And so their worship had a sense of urgency to it because they thought that God's return and the consummation of all things was imminent. We have become so distant from the urgency of the coming of christ that some of us are going to be surprised when heaven gets here and we worship forever we would do well to have a little more of that urgency when we gather a little more of that anticipation you think about the old testament story after story after worship when The people of Israel, for example, are approaching God in Isaiah chapter 1 or in Amos chapter 5 or in Micah chapter 6. And they think, man, we have got it all right. We have got the form down. We have got all the acts of worship down. We've got our festivals in order. And they come before God to offer them. And what does God say? You smell. That's a Hebrew idiom. He literally says, I detest the way you smell before me. Your, your sacrifices, they're all in, invalid because you've forgotten about the justice component of worship. If people are hungry or they're not clothed or the widows are being neglected or they're orphans without a home, your worship isn't complete because when we've come together and we've sung and we're reminded of who God is and what, we have, what he has done in our lives, we are launched back out into the world to love and serve in his name. Singing joins us together, unifies us, it prepares us to do the mission of God in the world, and then it launches us back out to love and serve in his name. If you do the math on this, and I'll defer to other mathematicians in the room because they'll tell you that I don't do math very well. Right, Keith? Right, Kyle? But we take, you know, 30 minutes a week We spend 30 minutes singing together. 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours in a day, 7 days a week. That's 10,080 minutes in the course of a week. 30 minutes out of 10,080 minutes in a week comes to roughly .29% of our minutes. That's not a lot of time. Some of us spend more time in our car singing at the top of our lungs than the 30 minutes we sing together in this room. God wants us to reprioritize what it means to worship, to honor him with all we are, all we have, for that small amount of time we spend together as God's people, to worship him at the top of our lungs because he gave himself for us and he's mighty and he's worthy and we have some reprioritizing we need to do if we can't do it for 0.29% of our time. Stand with me. Don't don't leave here and say that DJ said the rest of what we do in worship is not important because that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Sunday morning assembly is the be-all-end-all to worship. I'm saying that this is the place where we all come together to share what God is doing in our lives over the course of a week and then it launches us back out. All I'm saying is that for this few minutes we come together, why not give it all that you are? And all that you have. We're going to spend some time singing together in a minute. This is a great time for us to be in prayer together. Uh, The leaders of this church would love to pray with you, talk with you. Maybe there's someone right where you are that you want to pray with. This is a time where you can do that. We move into a time of prayer and response, and as we get ready to go out and love and serve in Jesus' name, I want you to think about finding your voice, because this applies differently to different people. God wants us to be a place and a people of song. I want you to listen to this quote from a guy named Joe Thorne. My sister sent me this quote five or six years ago. It's from a book called Note to Self. Listen to what Joe says. People sing about the things that capture their hearts and the things that give them joy. People sing of heroes and victory and longing and hope. People even sing as a way to express their sorrow. Does anyone have more reasons to sing than you do? As a sinner who has been forgiven, a slave who has been freed, a blind person who has received sight, a spiritual cripple who has been healed, all by the gospel, you have real reasons to be known as a person Of song. What do you have to sing about?